Okay. Um, I want to present the Sikha before we have a discussion because I feel like a Sikha is like one unit and, um, and the, the discussion will derail some of us. So let's do the whole thing. I would say, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25, then we can kick it around. So the, um, the theme of the Sikha, for those who read it and those who didn't read it, I want it to be an interesting conversation even if you didn't read the Sikha. Even if you read it, you're not sure with the details. The Sikha talks about the fact that the Torah portions have a pattern. Beratius, Noah, Lach Lacha, the biblical figures, Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, he brings in. It's not just a bunch of nice people, but there's a buildup. There's a buildup. If somebody told you that he built a business, and, uh, you know, it started in his garage, and then it moved to a storefront, and it moved to an office building, and then it took over, you know, I don't know, a whole uh, wing. It's a, it's a buildup, and this is Hashem's business, and the business is to bring to Sinai. The language in the Sicha over and over is we're trying to fuse heaven and earth, and that's the goal. That's the goal of Sinai and the goal of mitzvahs, which will be manifest in a revealed way when Mashiach comes, the third temple was manifest in some revealed way in the first and second temples. <laughs> Heaven and earth should merge. Earth should feel its creator and live its creator, even as it remains a physical place, a human place, a regular place. And why is this so important? This is not mentioned in the Sikha. Who cares? Like, what's the big deal? It's a whole discussion in the Sikha that in order to fuse these two, you got to bring it down, then you got to bring it up, then you got to bring it together. <laughs> it's like, why is that important? So the concept is that Kabbalistically, where's our Kabbalist today? He's not here yet. This is this is a very Kabbalistic Sikha, but it's brought down in philosophical terms. Kabbalistically, uh, the, the purpose of creation is described in different ways. And one of the ways is that we're trying to bring God to the world. We're trying to reveal God's light to the world. Why is that a value? So one of the explanations is because we want the world to experience God's truth. What is God's truth? Limitlessness. How do we know something is limitless and it reaches the furthest place? So that's the whole story. And therefore, uh, God is known in the heavens <clears throat> until God is known on earth and felt in the physical realm and not just by the great people, but by ordinary people then we didn't see the, the limitlessness. The fancy word is infinity. We didn't see it. So that is why this is a value. Connecting the upper with the lower heaven and earth, and they should really touch down, and earth should feel heaven, etc. Because we're showing the greatness of the infinity of Hashem, that even earth feels him. Um, you know, if I can throw a ball 10 feet, that's pretty good. If I can throw it 100 feet, that's not bad. If I can throw it 500 feet, if I can throw it to outer space, now we're talking. So the further something could go, the more it says about the person, who, the one who is sending it. Similarly, why is it so important that the physical earth should feel Hashem? And that's what the whole pro project of Sinai is about. You know, we do mitzvahs in physical. We say that the physical Torah, for example, which was once an animal grazing in the field, is now like divine-like. And each time you and I do a mitzvah, we are divine-like, and the act is divine-like, and the tefillin or the mezuzah or the tzedakah is divine-like. 
You eat a matzah, it's not a symbol of Hashem. It is a physical cracker. It's a cracker of faith. It's a diet of faith. Why is that so special? Because he just threw the ball out of space. Hashem's holiness, which is so beyond, is in a cracker. So that's really the rest of the story. That's really the value of this sicha. That's the value of this discussion. Otherwise, like, who cares? That's the value to us, who are Torah Yids. We're trying each on our own level to, to live in Hashem's light. Why do I need to know this <clears throat> philosophical discussion that Adam brought it down, and Noah brought it up, and Abraham brought it together, and Moses really brought it together? That's going to be the discussion, right? Because really, all of it is bringing out one point, that Hashem is the, is the only thing, the infinite thing, and therefore, he reaches every place. Um, before Sinai, that was an impossibility. When the angels heard that God Good is living in the Torah, human beings, Good. the angels Good. said, this is a joke. Is this some Thank kind you. of joke? You're bringing, it's like Albert Einstein says, watch this. Give me the kindergarten class. Not the kindergarten class. Give me the, the NICU, uh, uh, you know, wing. And I'm going to teach them. And the brilliant scholars say to Einstein, what are you talking about? It's impossible. And that's what the angel said to God when he wanted to give the Torah to humans. And, and which means that we're the ones who live Hashem's will. They laughed at it. The bridge is too much. It's unbridgeable, the gap. And Hashem said, that's the whole point. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why the purpose is with us, little finite beings, in the physical realm, we're plain people. We're not even righteous. We're just friendly. Or there are people trying to do Hashem's will. Good. That's the most amazing bridge, the most amazing leap. And why is that the greatest? Because that brings out the infinity. If an angel loves God, it's not so infinite. It didn't go such a far distance. If a human connects to a mitzvah and loves Hashem, that's a great distance. If a human does a mitzvah, it's even further. You following me? Because it's not love, which is spiritual. It's action, which is physical. So this is this is the whole subject in Torah of the merging, the fusion of heaven and earth, which is what Sinai is all about. So the Rebbe says in this sicha, didn't just happen in one day at Sinai. It's a big miracle to fuse these two. And there's steps. He presents four steps. <coughs> and it's interesting to us, I think, because... It explains a lot of the details of the story. Like, why do I need to know all these different stories? And uh, explains so that there's building blocks. So the Rebbe explains it by way of analogy. I'm going to present the analogy, and then I have a spreadsheet which will put it up in front of us, and we'll have the uh, the four biblical figures: Adam, Noah, Abraham, and then Moses, all building up to this fusion. And we'll see the differences in their relationship to God, their relationship to, to the world, etc. So what is the analogy? The analogy which we've talked about, we've used this analogy in the past. This is actually the sikha where the Rebbe spells out this analogy. That uh, you have a teacher and a student. <coughs> I don't envision a teacher who is uh, categorically uh, removed, more brilliant than the student in that particular subject. It's not common. Usually a teacher and a student, the teacher happens to know more because they've been around longer or they read the book. We're talking here, teacher, student, we're talking about that the teacher is like a, as a master. You know, if, if Chagall is teaching art, if uh, 
if the Alta Rebbe is teaching halacha, you know what I mean? If uh, if Mozart is teaching music, the teacher is like they're there. To the student, it's information. We all understand this. There are people to whom a certain subject, it's they have it, they get it, they're there. They were born on that mountain. You know, that's what real talent is. And uh, or in the holy realm, tzaddikim, to them, Torah, etc. It's it's who they are. So the teacher is trying to teach the student. And it's a big gap. You see how the analogy is with Hashem and us? It's a big gap. Because the teacher is there and the student is just uh, trying to gather information. A good analogy is that if somebody is trying to teach a blind person colors. Or when Mashiach comes, we're going to try to teach our bubbies and zadies who come back from the dead how the internet works. The whole concept of information traveling, of anything traveling that's not visible and touchable, is foreign to them. So you're teaching them something that's not in their realm. So it's a it's bridging a big big gap from teachers to student. So this is just a way to try to envision this gap. So the Rebbe says that there's there are two types of students. And then there is the third, which is the merging. The first type of student has a brilliant mind and is able to receive uh, the tremendous wisdom of the teacher and understand it. The teacher's wisdom is very lofty. The student has a very good IQ. He or she is able to receive it and understand it well. However, they're not able to integrate it into their own thinking and utilize it for other applications, be creative with it. It doesn't become theirs. They're just a good recipient. It doesn't mean that they're just parroting the information, then that's nothing. No, they understand. They have a good head to listen and, and understand and appreciate what's being said, even though it's very, very high. They're able to receive it. They're a good antenna. They're a good receptacle. But they don't digest it to the point where they now get the thought process and can apply it. The second student, which is the opposite, may not understand fully the teacher because the IQ isn't on that level. Like, what are you talking about? The stuff's off the charts. But I see where the teacher thinks, how the teacher thinks, and the student learns tools of processing, and he or she is able to process ideas on their own now, in line with the teacher's thought process. Says the Rebbe, there's a virtue in each one versus the other. Whereas student A talks about much higher level ideas. We had this conversation, I think last week or two weeks ago in the Sikha. A, a student A talks about much higher level ideas. However, it didn't become his. He's able to observe it and understand it and appreciate it. But it didn't become his. He didn't become wiser. Let's say he became smarter. He didn't become wiser. He has information on a good level. But you know, he, he can't apply it somewhere else. He is here, but the information that he's retaining is up here. The second student, he doesn't understand that lofty information. He's understanding only on his level. So he's a much lower level conversation. However, he is transformed to a higher level because now he's a thinker. And each one has a virtue. Each one has a virtue. You know. The father is Rockefeller. So he gives the kid a huge account. That's a virtue. The kid has a lot of money. Maybe you can do some good stuff. The second kid, the father's not Rockefeller, but the father gave him the, maybe the father is, 
but the father didn't give him the money. The father gave him the tools, how to build himself up. But that kid is starting from the bottom. And that kid will probably never become a Rockefeller. But one can argue he has better tools. And if the first kid makes one bad investment, he's done. Whereas the second kid, he'll probably always be okay because it's become him, just to use a business analogy. And the same thing is in, in the uh, teacher-student analogy. So that's, those are the two first levels. What's the third level? When the two merge, when the teacher is able to connect to the student so much that it has both virtues. On the one hand, the student retains the teacher's ideas, but now it's integrated into his thinking and now he can think like teacher. And that becomes the model for the whole uh, and for the story of, of Genesis. Says the Rebbe that what? We have Adam, Noah, and Abraham. The first three millennia, if you will, of creation. For the first millennia, uh, God shined his light. People lived a thousand years. We talked about it last week. Apparently, everybody was like a prophet. You know, because the Rockefeller gave him an expense account. Hashem was shining his light. The people were operating on a very high level until they did the first sin. Then they were gone. There was no concept of Teshuvah. They had no character. That's why it was a flood. The second period, Noah's period, from Noah to Abraham, was the exact opposite. That mankind and the world returned, rebuilt, and they weren't so prophetic. They didn't live a thousand years. They weren't experiencing this infinite light. But however, on a human level, they were growing. They were becoming people. Nature was becoming solid, as we talked last week, that after this flood, Hashem said, nature will never falter again. Whereas after, in the first millennia, in one second, the world could disappear, which it did. So the second millennia represents the student. Learning, he's growing. He's not Rockefeller. They weren't all prophets, but they had the concept of personal growth, of trial and error. They did mistakes. They did teshuva. People sinned. God didn't have to destroy the whole world. What's missing is, though, that they didn't have access to God's light. God wants to give his whole infinity. And that's where Abraham comes in as a precursor to Sinai. And Abraham represents the concept that... Uh, we have both together. We have the God's the inf infinite light, infinite blessing within a human being, within a physicality. And that the example was the mitzvah of circumcision, that in your physical body, you're actually touching the divine. And this was the beginning of the journey to Sinai. There's a fourth step, which is Moses. We'll get to that in a second. But this is the model the Rebbe puts on. Before I bring up the spreadsheet, which might confuse some of us or help us, I want to just give us an example for this model in another conversation, and that is the three temples. I don't know if we talked about this in the past, maybe we did, that we know that there's three temples. The first temple of Sinai, the second temple that was rebuilt after the second commonwealth, and then the temple of Mashiach. Why do we have three temples? Maybe we should just have one, and it should never have been destroyed. Or maybe we should have three or five. Or, or what's the number three? So in Hasidus, it's explained that it's exactly this model. If you think about the, what does the temple mean? The people saw God's presence. 
the revelation of godliness. Godliness was felt. It was a taste of Sinai full time for 410 years in the first temple, 420 years in the second temple, and Mitzvah Mashiach comes forever. So, but each one was different. The first temple was like the first student. Hashem was shining his light. There were miracles galore. If you just visited the temple, you had no doubt that there was a God. You saw it with your eyes. There were miracles. With pouring rain, it couldn't put out the fire. There was no room to budge. Suddenly they had room to prostrate themselves. There was a divine cloud. The breastplate of the high priest was giving answers. Uh, the ark was uh, miraculously standing there without taking up an inch of space. They've, God's presence was obvious. So how did they mess up? You and I might say, if we were there, we would never sin. The people sinned. They fell to the lowest level. Uh, they uh, they worshipped idols, you know what I mean? And there was a reason why there was a destruction. Like, why couldn't that last forever? Hashem came down. And he was revealed. All the nations were bringing sacrifices to the temples. And people were giving taxes to the Jewish king of Solomon. It was fantastic. How did they mess that up? Why didn't it have staying power? I mean, it lasted for 400 plus years. But why didn't it last forever? Hashem is eternity. The answer is Hashem is eternity. However, the world did not integrate it. The world just took the free ride. Rockefeller gave us expense account. God was shining his light. The teacher was giving off great wisdom and the student was saying, wow, this is brilliant, this is brilliant. But he or she didn't take the time to figure out what to do with that information in case the teacher leaves. They were just enjoying the lesson. Hashem was shining his light. There were miracles. There was what's called Gilu Lukus, the revelation of divinity on a constant basis. The people said, this is a great stuff. We love it. But they didn't transform themselves. They didn't do the heavy work of becoming better people. And when they were tempted with idolatry or whatever else, they failed. Like that first student, if he's asked a question that wasn't on the test, he doesn't know what to say because he hasn't learned how to think. Or like the first generation, pre-flood where people were prophetic. They were holy people. They talked to God until they tasted sin. And then there was no point of return because they had no character. I want you to think about it. When Noah built the ark, apparently there were tens of thousands of people on the planet. It wasn't like 50 people. The world was a thousand years old. And yet there wasn't a single righteous person except Noah. Not one. My son was questioning me, Mayor, on the way to Shul. So what about Noah's father? Was he killed in the flood? The math is that his father passed before. His father was probably a good guy, Lemach, if he raised such a son. Even his grandfather, Mesushelach, who was considered to be really, really righteous and he lived the longest life, he passed away right before the flood. And Rashi points out that God, the verse says that God waited seven days to make the flood. It was the Shiva of Mesushelach. So by the time the flood came, there wasn't a single righteous person on earth except for Noah. And his family, which, eh, it's a mixed bag there. Just one person and righteous over there means decent. Just moral. Just a human being, not an animal. How did the whole world become corrupt? Wasn't there like, you know, yeshiva, some good guys? And the answer is because of this concept that there was no character. There was no spiritual immune system. They were all given expense accounts. And they were rich until they made one bad investment. And they lost their pants. So... We, so the, this becomes, whereas in the second temple, let's go back to the analogy of the temple. I don't know why. I feel like the temples is helpful. 
I'm using it as an analogy, even though it's also the analog, um, the application of the analogy. The first temple was like that top-down era. Hashem revealed his light. The people basked in it. There were miracles. The people loved it. They swore that there's a God that's great until they tasted sin or until they messed up. They did not become better. You don't know if you're a good teacher until you find out what the kids do when you leave. You don't know if you're a good parent until you know what your kids do when they mature and leave the house. And that was the problem with the first temple. Not a problem, but that was its limitation. It was just top down. Hashem was there. The teacher was in the room. And it was tremendous miracles, the breastplate, everything else. But the human being and the Jewish people did not become a really holy people. The second temple was the exact opposite. It was bottom up. Hence, there were no miracles in the second temple, as far as we know, or big overt miracles. Even the ark wasn't in the Holy of Holies. A lot of people don't know that. The ark was not in the Holy of Holies in the second temple. It was buried on the ground. So you didn't have the miracle of the ark uh, suspended, so to speak, without taking up space. The Urim Betumim, which was the magical message giver from the breastplate, was hidden. You had the breastplate, but the name of Hashem, which was deposited in for the miraculous power, was gone. And we don't speak about a lot of miracles. However, says the Talmud, the second temple was bigger than the first. And when the Torah says, this is a biblical verse, by the way, this second one will be bigger than the verse, than the first. And the Talmud explains when the Torah says bigger, what does it mean bigger? It happened to be physically bigger. It was much taller. It also was bigger in longevity. It lasted a little longer. Instead of 410, it lasted 420. But these are just symbolisms or expressions of the fact that there was a greater accomplishment. The Jewish people were not prophetic. They couldn't swear to anything. They didn't see God. They were human beings. But they did the heavy lifting of teshuva. They turned around. They became better. They, they realized that uh, this is not the way to be. We have to get close to Hashem. And for 420 years, they sustained that. And they, they, they did fantastic stuff. Even though they didn't have great revelations. But that too had a limitation because it is limited to the human being's capacity. And humans are limited. Only God is limitless. And therefore, that came to an end. But it made its impact. The concept of the third temple is the combination of both together, where Hashem's infinite light will be revealed. However, humanity, through the long exile and the fact that humanity, through the Jewish people, showed and developed a real character. You want to know what character is? Look at your screen. It's 2,000 years after we saw miracles. And we're sitting and studying Torah on a Sunday morning. We could be eating bagels. We could do that too. But character means we're doing it. We don't need the teacher or the parent to stand over us every two seconds. We're sort of getting it. It's a much bigger struggle because we're doing it. Ultimately, it's also limited because we're doing it. And Mashiach comes tomorrow, today. We're still going to study Torah. But our minds will be open like Moses or like, you know, the Alta Rebbe. And yet we will feel the connection on a personal level. We'll have the fusion of both. And that never breaks. That will never go away. And that's manifest in every way. It's manifest in the political arena. There will never again be a war. There will never again be hatred. Never again be. Why? Because war comes from the humanity not feeling the presence of a unified creator. So the first temple, there's no war because God shined his light and he said to the whole world, you see Solomon, these people, they're my people, don't mess. Okay, they got it. 
but it was imposed. You might say in the second temple, the message is an opposite one, that the Jewish people managed to garner some support or whatever impact of, I'm calling it political, what really mean, you know, the, the nations and the concept of bringing peace to the world, bringing a concept of decency to the world. But ultimately that certainly has its limitations. Once Mashiach comes in the third temple, there's never a possibility for war or destruction because the presence of God is not only seen, it's also felt. And if you see it and you feel it, there's nothing else to do. The truth shines and the people get it. And what is it? That there's a creator that's a unifying force for every single creature and every single human being, certainly. And therefore, there's no place for envy, for greed, for any of this stuff that's stupid. But that is that is the three-prong process. So let's quickly look at the spreadsheet. I told you the whole sikha, but I'm going to fill in some of the blanks. Um, and those who did the hard lifting of reading such a long, difficult sikha may appreciate it a little more than others, but I think everybody can understand the, the, the map. Hang on. So this is, Arthur, you see the spreadsheet, yes? Okay. I want to do this rather quickly. I'd rather hear what you uh, have to say. Okay. So we have, let's leave alone the fourth line, the fourth line for a second, because we didn't address that. We only spoke about the three students, not the fourth. We'll get back to that in a second. Um, we have the three portions, voracious, Noah, lach, lach, lach. the three characters, Adam, Noah, and Abraham. The direction is top down, bottom up, and the fusion. Abraham is a fusion with God. He's doing mitzvahs. He's doing God's will in his human body. He's doing hospitality to human beings who are lowly people, who are non-believers. He's connecting high and low. The student-teacher analogy, which is the column that we discussed mostly, um, uh, brings home this message. The first student's a good receiver. The second one integrates the wisdom and the third one becomes teacher-like. And the only other column that we covered here was the Beta Mikdash. This is BH, is Beta Mikdash, one, two, and three. Now let's throw in, before we do the other columns, let's throw in the Exodus. What's missing? What's missing? In let's use, go back to the teacher student analogy. We have the student who gets tremendous wisdom of the teacher. We have a student that gets less but integrates. And then we have the student that does both. Actually, their mind thinks like teacher now, and they're able to integrate the lofty levels of wisdom. What's missing? Jacob. What's missing? Let me finish, Michael, okay? Yeah. What's missing? And what's missing to what? Remember, what is the goal? We're trying to show infinity. Hashem's infinity. He reaches the furthest place. Einstein is teaching the kindergarten, and they're getting it. So what's missing? The answer is, can Einstein also teach the desk or only the students? You want them to teach desks? What are you joking? Desks are not students. Aha, that's a limitation. Remember, when we say Hashem has no limit, we really mean it. 
And ultimately, real limitlessness, real infinity means Hashem is in the physical. You know how people always mock how Judaism is so busy with physical actions. It's such a lofty religion. It's the mother of all faiths. Can we stop at these petty actions with black straps and, and candles and coins and tzedakah boxes and all this physical stuff and soul shakers? I mean, you know what I mean? Let's get, let's get past that. It's such a great faith. There's so much wisdom and spirituality and we're so busy. You know, find me a great Torah scholar and you'll also find me somebody who is so careful in the minutia of halacha. Did I bow to the right by Oseh Shalom or did I bow to the left? Depends which one. Like, why are we so busy with the physical? And the answer is because that's where Einstein reaches the desk. That's where we see the infinity of Hashem. That's why when we close our eyes, say Hashem Echad. What does Hashem Echad mean? Not that he's the only God, but he's the only one. Everything is Hashem. So a teacher can be brilliant and he can teach all students but he can't make the table on the stand. It's just not happening. Why not? That's a limitation. He can, therefore he's not reaching the lowest place. He's reaching somebody who has capacity for wisdom. It's a low wisdom, the kids in kindergarten, but there's capacity and you're working with something. When we say Hashem's infinity, we're talking about actually reaching the physical. So in my, and this becomes the Moses phase, this becomes what Sinai does. Abraham fuses with Hashem, but in Sinai we get physical. Abraham didn't have physical mitzvahs except for the bris. That's why when they had to take an oath, they had to use the bris because the bris was the only physical thing that really was a mitzvah. Pro-Sinai, all of Judaism is physical. The spiritual is almost like the, the fine print. Why? Because that's the whole idea. The whole idea is to show infinity of Hashem. You want, Hashem says, you want to see me? Kiss him, mezuzah. You want to hug me? Read some Torah. You want to taste me? Make a bracha and eat, uh, make kiddush. I mean, physical stuff, the matzah. When we eat matzah on Pesach, and a person understands the meaning of matzah, this is not trying to remember something. If you have to remember, why do you have to eat so much matzah? And you have to leave. The matzah is actual. The Zohar says the matzah heals, the matzah brings faith. It's actual. It's like a, it's like popping a pill of divinity. So here Einstein teaches the desk, and that becomes the Moses phase. It's an extension of Abraham. That's why you'll see in the Beis Migdash column, there isn't the fourth temple. But it is an extension of Abraham bringing it much further. We're touching the lowest place where. The student doesn't need any capacity. It could be a table, it could be a rock, and it connects. That's what Moses brings out. So let me show you this in a few things that you're familiar with. When I, when I sit and talk, talk Torah with you, especially this group, but any group, but this group especially, I'm trying, how do I connect to you? I'm trying to find things that you relate to. The Rebbe helped me today because it's in the Sikha. Look at the column that says faith and logic. And let's see things that we may be familiar with from the Torah portion about these four biblical figures. Adam, not just Adam himself, but the whole generation, was all about faith. It was all about revelation. We don't find the idea of studying about God and becoming knowledgeable about God. It was all topped out. Faith means revelation. They felt it. 
They felt it, so they couldn't deny it. Adam talked to God. He was embarrassed from God, so he hid in the closet. But God was reality. The second Noah, we talk about Noah as somebody who had who studied God. But there was a lack of faith. That's why he didn't go into the ark till it started to rain. The Talmud says, quote, he was of little faith, which means, he, what does it mean that someone has good logic of God, but he's lacking faith? That's the second student. I have a good mind, and it's like a scientist who says, I think there's a God, but he's coming to it from the bottom. He'll never really appreciate the true infinity of God because he's limited to his capacity of his intelligence. And that was Noah. That's why he's no Abraham. Abraham, we celebrate both sides. On the one hand, we say Abraham is the first Jew because he discovered God logically. He discovered God literally from, from looking at nature. He studied it. He was a brilliant scientist. And he discovered God. That's beautiful. That's what God wants. He doesn't just want revelation like in the Adam era. But at the same time, once he discovered God and he had revelation from God, he became the father of all believers. The language is Abraham is Rosh Lama Aminim, the, the head of believers. From him, we all inherit faith. The Sikha quotes the verse that we say every day in our davening. You found his heart faithful and wholesome to you. And it's a biblical verse in Torah itself. It says, He believed in God, even though it defied logic. The binding of the Isaac defied logic. The fact that he would have a child defied logic. So Abraham had the perfect fusion of both. However, Moses brings in the third column of action. This connects to the column of Teshuvah. Remember, we're talking about the world developing character. So in the first millennia, it didn't develop character. It was just an awe of the great teacher. It was an awe of the, of the presence of, of the great light. But remember the first sin that they did, they were gone. This is expressed in the fact that Enoch or Hanoich, the Torah says that Hashem took him away before his time. And Rashi brings down from the Talmud. Why did God take him away? The verse says he was righteous. He was walking in the path of God. And he's gone because God took him away. Why? And it's explained because, says Rashi from the Talmud, that he was very righteous, but he was easily swayed. And in a moment, he could have fallen off the moral cliff. And therefore, God said, you know what? Let's take him back. It's not fair. He's such a good guy. He means so well. Apparently, he was really special. And the Kabbalah talks about the soul of Enoch reincarnating in Elijah. Apparently, Enoch is a big, important player. So therefore, God took him back because if he stayed another few days, he would have been exposed to, to the wrong friends. Boom, there was no character. So it's a, the reason why this is a good column is because it's something that's right in the book. You see the Rebbe's ideas, which he's teaching us from Kabbalah and from the Hasidic uh, texts, mirrored in the Chumash. There's no concept in that whole first portion of Horatius, of teshuva, of rebuke, only with Adam and Cain. The Rebbe says in the footnote, that because they were in the Garden of Eden, so they were they were at a different level. But other than them, there was no concept of tshuva. People were good until they weren't. And when they weren't, it was time to say goodbye. Hence the flood. We don't find people praying to God. You should, you should. Noah, we all criticize Noah that he didn't pray to God to save the people. What we don't know is that he rebuked the people. For 120 years as he's building the ark, every single day, he gave a big lecture of rebuke. 
He rebuked the people for 120 years. He did his job, but he never prayed. What's the difference between rebuke and prayer? Rebuke is I want the people to become better. Prayer is I'm employing heaven. I'm appealing to heaven. Noah didn't understand the concept that heaven and earth are connected. Remember, Noah is the bottom-up generation. Noah says, we're supposed to do our part. Leave God out of this. Don't pray. Don't ask God to do it. You do it. There's a great virtue to that. But it's a missing piece. And therefore, Noah never prayed. But he did rebuke the people. He did try to make them better. Whereas Abraham, he prays to God. He probably, I'm sure, did a lot to, he taught the people too. We know Abraham was teaching God uh, to everybody. And he had influence and he created monotheism as a seemingly universal almost at that time. People really knew about it. He did a good job bottom up, but he also prayed. He understood that God's not so far away. God is just one flight up because heaven and earth were close. But he only prayed in the merit of the righteous. If there's 10 righteous people, you got to save the people. Remember, Abraham represents that Einstein can teach the kindergarten. God can relate to humans, but which humans? Righteous humans. Kindergarten kids, they may be lowly, but they got, they got a kepi. If you work with it, you'll develop them. They may become an Einstein. In the merit of the righteous, Abraham said, let's save the world. Let's save Sodom and Gomorrah. What are you going to destroy them? It's stupid. God, you can, you can tolerate it. Look at the righteous people. The minute it was discovered that no 10 righteous people, there isn't any righteous people there. So there's no one really to save. He didn't, he stopped praying. He's a good guy. I'm sure he felt bad. But he stopped praying because what's he going to pray for? How can you connect Einstein to the table? There's no student. A student in the context of the God-human relationship means a righteous person, a moral person. Moses, he prayed for the people who built the golden calf. Not in the merit of the righteous. He prayed for the sinners directly. And he didn't budge until God said, okay, okay, I promise. Because Moses represents that fourth step. That God is infinite enough to encompass all. Einstein can teach the table. God's infinity permeates everyone, even the sinner. The sinner himself is part of the picture. Obviously, the goal is to elevate the sinner. But the sinner himself is part of the picture, is a connection to Hashem, and therefore he prays for the sinners. Of course, he rebuked the sinners, and of course, he, he, he did what he had to do with the Jews. But when he came to God, he didn't qualify. He didn't say, well, there's some good people. Pray for the sinners. And here we see the complete merge of top to bottom. And the Rebbe gives a beautiful lesson in the last column. It took longer than I thought, but I'm, I'm still have time for discussion. If, if, if I asked you what's the takeaway from this class, you know, there's a lot of different takeaways. To me, one of the takeaways is that Judaism is faith, it's logic, it's the fusion of both, and it's action. That's a big takeaway. Now, when you do a physical mitzvah, you're literally touching the divine. That's, to me, the biggest takeaway. And when we live Judaism based on all the technicalities of physical mitzvahs, this is not uh, a sideshow. It's the greatest thing. It's Moses. So that's obviously the takeaway. The Rebbe applies it 
When the Rebbe said the Sicha, he was then inventing Jewish outreach, if you will. And this was his passion. And he was trying to teach his Hasidim to be colorblind to every Jew, no matter who they are, and to accept them and embrace them the same love. And that is the way you're going to bring them close to Yiddishkeit. And therefore, the Rebbe gave this lesson. And obviously, it still applies. Um, the Rebbe says, you have to understand when the Rebbe started outreach, a lot of people from the older Chabadnik said, that's not Chabad. Chabad is philosophical, mystical teachings. And here the Rebbe made Chabad, outreach, Chabad houses, mitzvah tanks. Clearly, we still have the philosophical. But the Rebbe was saying, no, the outreach is the deepest expression of the philosophy. Just like Moses is the deepest expression of Abraham. And so look at this column. Give me one more minute. Look at this column. The first level, the voracious level, the Rebbe says a person is, let's say, a good Jew, a Torah Jew. You can say the same thing for a Gentile who's keeping the seven mixes. But we're Jews. Let's talk about Jews. He's, he's davening and he's learning and he's very from. There's another Yid out there who doesn't know anything. It's not his problem. He's not busy with the, with the outside. He's busy with heaven. He's a top-down type of Jew. He's busy with heaven. He doesn't want to know about Jews who don't keep Shabbos. It doesn't mean anything to him. It's a distraction. Then you have a Noach Jew. Noach Jew means somebody who understands. What do you mean? We're supposed to find the character in the world. We're supposed to go out there and elevate people. That's our job. We can't just focus on heaven. So he does outreach. Well, what's lacking? Like Noah did outreach. Noah rebuked the people. But then when God said, okay, time's up, he stopped. He didn't pray. It's like a person who does outreach to others because it says so in Jewish law. Thou shalt love your neighbor. So he loves his neighbor because the book said so, not because he loves that person. He's reaching out to that person. He invites him for Shabbos. The person turns him down. So he says, okay, I did my job. He's doing his duty. The model is top down. He being the top. He's the teacher. He's a Torah Jew. He reaches out. The person says, no, he says, I'm good. I only did it because, um, you know, I'm supposed to. But not that it, it's out of duty. And you will not have a lot of success if you're doing outreach to others because you're just doing your duty. You don't really care about the results. If our child is struggling and we reach out and we talk to them and we help them only because that's our duty. We don't want to get bad marks as a parent, but we don't really care about the child. We're not a healthy parent. That's not parenting. But that is one level of, of outreach that a person might feel. I'm doing my duty. I did my job. I reached out. I made a phone call. I'm done. I'm not invested in the other person. Whereas the third level is the connection of heaven and earth. No, I want to reach out to the other year. Just like Abraham prayed for the people and even the non-righteous, but he prayed in the merit of the righteous. Why am I reaching out to the other year? Because I know I could see that year, he could really start doing mitzvahs. That year could really become a Baal Teshuvah. I see hope. Einstein is teaching the kindergarten there because he sees there's a good kepi there. Abraham is praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, because there's some righteous people potentially. There's some light to be brought out. So he says, let's do this. The same thing as a person says, I'm going to reach out. Of course I reach out, but I'm going to find the people on my neighborhood who are the most 
sensitive, the most susceptible to something spiritual, and I can envision them becoming Shama Shabbos. Aha! They're worth my time. But what about the Yid who, I know there's no hope, or I think there's no hope. I don't care. I couldn't care less. I'm not going to waste my time. The ultimate level is that a person reaches out to another Yid. He's not staying away in heaven in his own realm. He's reaching out. But he's not reaching out out of duty. And he's not even reaching out for the benefit of bringing that people, that person closer. He just loves that other person. And that's where the real results will happen. If a person has a child that is struggling spiritually or otherwise, ultimately, if it's your child, you don't really care about the results. You just care about the kid. The results are part of the kid. And therefore, like Moses, you just say to Hashem, I don't care that they sin. They're your kids. Ultimately, you get the best results. But that means it's unconditional. And it's truly about the fusion of heaven and earth. Like Moses prayed for the sinners without the merit of the righteous. But again, to me, the takeaway is the column of faith and logic and how Judaism has logic, not because we can understand God, but we're supposed to do our part. It's ultimately based on faith, but it's brought together by action.